Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, Raul Torres was sworn in as our new Attorney General January 1st, 2023, and is making a lot of changes. From changing the way the Yazi Education lawsuit is defended, from starting a new Civil Rights Division. We'll ask him why. Attorney General Torres, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to, to have a conversation today. There's a lot of really important things at the office, and um, I'm looking forward to it. So it's great to have you here, and I, I'm eager to hear about those important things at the office and uh, what's behind, what you're thinking behind that. But I, I'd like to start with a bit about your background. You are a Harvard undergraduate. You have a master's from the London School of Economics. And you have a Stanford law degree, but you you start out as an assistant DA in Valencia County, making $37,000 a year. So that is not the typical career choice for someone (laughs) with those credentials. So what's going on there? (laughs) Yeah, well, it it really, it really came, came home for me uh, just in the last few months when I got a notice from the Department of Education that my student loans were were finally um, eligible for forgiveness under the under the public interest loan program. And, Congratulations! You know, I get yeah. I mean, I right, just just before I turned, you know, I'm, I'm not quite fifty yet, but um, you know, some of my friends from from Harvard and Stanford would sort of get a get a laugh out of that. But you know, the 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 short answer is. Um, I'm, I'm an Albuquerque kid. Um, and both of my parents were in public service. My mom was a public school teacher and my dad was a career prosecutor. And, um, you know, I don't think there was anything explicit about it, but they always, you know, they just placed a premium on, um, giving back and, and trying to help, you know, do what they could in their day-to-day lives to, to improve the community. And I, had the, those two people in, in, in my life, you know, as the most important role models. And when it was time to make a decision about where to go, um, you know, I, I, I thought I, I had an obligation to come home and try to make things better. And, um, you know, fortunately, I never got a taste of, of working at a big firm in, in you know, another city, um, except for a couple of summers when I was in law school. But I think it's a lot easier to kind of turn away from those things and, and focus on, on the work. Because um, if, if I'd probably gotten one of those big paychecks when I was a lot younger coming home, maybe a little more challenging for me. So, so after Valencia County, you become an assistant U.S. attorney. Then you are elected twice as Bernalillo County uh, district attorney. And then very recently, you know, January of this year, you become attorney general. So these are all public service jobs in rapid succession. So it looks like that's where you want to make your life, public service. Yeah. And, and actually, there's one thing that's, that wasn't on your list. I was in between being an assistant district attorney and then working in the Obama administration. I actually worked as an assistant attorney general. So I was both an ADA before I was elected DA. And I was both an assistant attorney general before I was elected attorney general, um, which gives me kind of a unique perspective because there aren't um, many folks in these leadership positions that have the perspective of, of the frontline lawyers, the people working um, and managing 
you know, big caseloads and dealing with all of those pressures. And I, I think it's sort of helped me have the right kind of perspective, not only about the things that I think are possible that we haven't done yet, but, but really the, the challenges that, that people that are on the very front end of these really important and complex issues face day in and day out. And so, um, you know, I'm just, it's, it's a real thrill for me um, to be able to, to be in a position to try and move these institutions in, into new places where I think they can have a real impact on people's lives. So, so that raises an interesting thing for me because another way to look at that, what you've been doing are, you know, logical, sensible stepping stones to higher political office. And it sounds like that's also something that you've been doing. Yeah, you know, I have this, um, it's, it's interesting I, and I've had this sort of moment a few times in my career where, where I, I focus on the job that I have, you know, whether it's being a brand new prosecutor. And I actually wasn't in, in Bernalillo County. I was in that Valencia County office. I did that because, um, you know, the experience my father had, that was actually the office that my father started off in, I think, in the late 1970s. And so I was following very much in, in his footsteps. And I was, you know, like a lot of people, a lot of sons are with their dads. You're trying to prove themselves and prove that they're able to to do certain things. And I was focused on being the best at wherever, you know, wherever I found myself, I wanted to prove that I could that I could do the best possible job to help folks. But then I would always get to a place where I would grow frustrated by the institution or by the systems. And I would, I would run into these barriers about, um, you know, what was possible. You know, we can't do this program this way because it's not designed like that. You know, we can't create a new system or um, a new um, way of organizing the government. Because, quite frankly, I would bump into people that were above me and I would get any number of reasons of why something couldn't happen. And then I would figure out at a certain point, well, hey, um, if I go high enough in this organization, I'll be in a position to make those changes. And that's kind of how it's worked, where I've, I've, I'm kind of a, a restless person when I do the work that I do. And I get up very early and I read a ton. My, my wife and, and kids make fun of me because I get up probably four or five in the morning every day and read five or six different newspapers from all over the world, local newspapers, but, you know, papers about all the new sort of technology and developments in the law and all these new ideas. And then I start to formulate how those things could be applied in Albuquerque or in New Mexico. And, and then when I show up at work, usually people on my staff have been receiving texts from me about, well, what about this idea or what about this thing? And anytime I run into a situation where the, where someone says you can't do that, that's when I start to get restless about, well, who someone gets to make that decision, who's that person? And that's kind of what's driven my sort of path through public service and public life. So, so that actually sounds like you've already answered my question about what's going on at the attorney general's office and why you're making changes. You're you're you were frustrated by the way it was and you wanted to you wanted to change things. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I like I said, I, I had in every moment of my career, like as a frontline ADA or in a, a frontline assistant attorney general, I have these ideas that I just couldn't give 
force or effect to. And now that I'm in these moments, I'm really I don't want to waste time. I don't want to I don't want to uh, waste time um, where we can really drive significant and important impact and change. And, you know, a, a lot of what you will see in the priorities that we've established for the office are a reflection of, of the professional life that I've come before. When I was in ADA in Valencia County, I got drawn into child abuse cases. And, you know, I spent, I was the sort of designated prosecutor who would go up to the all face receiving home. Um, and, you know, in the world of prosecution, people that do child abuse, you know, that is, even amongst prosecutors and police officers, that's a specialized area that's really not for everyone because it's so psychologically and emotionally taxing. But my very first trial was a big uh, child abuse case, and I was just drawn to that work. I didn't have kids at the time, and frankly, that made it a whole lot easier. But I would always receive home, and I would listen to the what are forensic disclosures, usually of little kids, three, four, five years old, detailing episodes of neglect, abuse, sexual assault, um, witnessing a parent with addiction, and things like that. And it, it really started to build in me this idea that a lot of the problems that we see manifested in society in New Mexico, whether it's problems with healthcare or homelessness or crime or education, are actually symptoms of a, of a larger systemic failure to care for our kids. And, you know, when I involve our office in things like the Oscar Martinez lawsuit, or I talk about establishing a civil rights unit that's focused on protecting the civil rights of children, and specifically turning that our attention to um, some pretty appalling failures at CYFD, all of that is derived from hours, frankly, of sitting in a tiny room watching children talk about horrific issues. And the way I look at it is if, if I can make a difference there, then maybe not in my lifetime, but maybe, you know, generations forward, we can start to turn the narrative about where we are as a state of being at the bottom of every list. It's got to start with that generation with those kids and breaking that cycle of violence, ending childhood trauma, and empowering the the state um, to do things in a way that places the interests of children first and foremost. And we, we haven't done that in my judgment yet. We have a lot of well-intentioned people and good people that are trying to do it, but the systems of government are really just not in the kind, they don't have the kind of alignment that we need for sustained progress on that front. But if I feel like that is the key. If you can change that direction, that narrative, mostly of children zero to five, in the world that they come into and the kind of, frankly, trauma they're exposed to, if we can maybe not eliminate that, but mitigate that and start building stronger families from the ground up, you know, you're going to see um, real progress in this state. And if we fail to do that, I don't think we'll make that progress that we need. Well, speaking of being at the bottom of the list, I'd really like to talk to you about Yazi and what you are thinking about that case because, as you know, we're at the very bottom of the education list. But before we do that, I'd like to mention that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm very pleased to be talking with 
our Attorney General, Raul Torres. And Attorney General Torres, uh, my understanding is that you've been looking into the Yazi case and thinking about changing the way that case has been defended. And I wonder if you might start out by giving us, and this is almost an unfair, impossible question, but could you give us a little summary of what Yazi is? Well, sure. So it's, it's a story that basically starts nearly a decade ago when the first action was, was brought on behalf of, a class, of different classes of children in the state who were not receiving uh, sufficient and adequate and equitable resources for their education, specifically Native American children, children with disabilities, low-income children, English language learners. And, and what the, the core of that case was, was an argument that was advanced by MALDEF, the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty, and others that basically said that the, the state of New Mexico was violating its constitutional obligation to provide equal and adequate resources for the education of those specific groups of kids. After a very long uh, pre-litigation phase and then ultimately a trial, Judge Sarah Singleton issued an order in 2018 that ruled that, yes, in fact, the state had failed to meet its constitutional obligation. And she created, um, in her findings and conclusion, a pretty detailed articulation of all of the various things that needed to be done to remedy um, that shortcoming, that failure. Um, fast forward five years, and Judge Singleton sadly has passed away. The case has been transferred to a different judge. And the bottom line is that, that at least from the plaintiff's perspective, and I think I share their perspective, we have not made adequate progress in meeting the goals that Judge Singleton set forth. Now, I think it's important to put into the, to the sort of context that, that the state, especially in the last several budgetary cycles, has substantially increased um, resources and funding for uh, K-3 cases. I, I call it the billion-dollar question. The legislature must be asking. Right. We put another billion dollars in, and under the, right. uh, the National Assessment of Educational Testing, uh, New Mexico is not only dead last still, right. but actually went down in a lot of scores. So the legislature's got to be wondering, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, and I think there are a lot of, of legis- leaders in the legislature who are committed to doing this. They've, they've made the arguments not only about the need to meet the, the constitutional requirements articulated by Judge Singleton, but to meet the moral obligation that we have to, to make sure that these kids in these specific categories have access to the resources that they need. But he, here's the thing. Appropriating the money, um, especially in a time where there's record levels of budget surplus, is, is necessary, absolutely, but not sufficient to achieve the kind of outcomes that we want to achieve. And I think what is fundamentally missing from the equation is a, is a comprehensive uh, blueprint, a roadmap that, that sets out specific met- metrics in a, in a detailed way, in a measurable timeline that allows the state to, to benchmark its progress, not just cutting a check 
handing it to the department and then saying, okay, you know, we've, we've increased funding X percentage. We have to under, we have to track those dollars. We have to do program evaluations. We have to dig into the policies and procedures that govern the relationship between PED and the school districts. And we need to really dedicate the kind of management and process sort of development that frankly has been missing from this. And the, the reason I say that is five years on, rather than engaging in sort of a, the development of that blueprint or the execution of that blueprint, the plaintiffs and the, and the department are still engaged in post-trial litigation. They are, they are taking depositions. So what is that? People must, people must really wonder in, in a 2014 case what it is they could possibly be fighting about. Well, I, I think um, the, the real challenge, and I, you know, I, I say this with all uh, respect to the members of my profession, is that a lot of times um, we let lawyers get in the way of progress, right? We, we allow the legal fight to consume too many resources. And, you know, from my perspective, one of the decisions that the department made in, in recent times was a, a motion to dismiss the lawsuit R early on in just, a, you know, a couple years after Judge Singleton's order and basically went to the court and said, look, we've made all these investments. We're done. Any progress that has yet to be made is the responsibility of the school districts and we should be let out. Um, the court denied that motion and dismissed it. And so we've spent all this time in litigation deposing people and getting you know, formal legalistic answers to all of these questions. And what we need is to put a pause in that, and we need to bring the parties together and try to broker some compromise, some agreement. And, and that's the role that I think the attorney general's office can play, right? I, I've had – conversations with the Yazi team. We've met with, with PED. We've met with the, you know, the legal team that on both sides of the equation. And our basic proposal to them is, is look, this is not, whatever this is, it's not advancing the interests of children, right? And it's not, it's not pushing us towards the kind of progress that the court, or more importantly, our families and our communities expect of us. So why don't we use the, the framework of this litigation to try to broker and develop a, a blueprint that we can all agree on? And it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. I mean, it's, it's not, frankly, dissimilar to a lot of international diplomatic negotiations where parties are sort of set in these entrenched positions. But um, I am I'm very troubled by the fact that we don't have a plan that we can present to the court, that the parties can mutually agree to and say, this represents the obligations that the state is willing to make and the commitments that the state is willing to make to, sh to show measurable progress in these specific categories. Because it's pretty clear that if money were the real challenge and we could solve this by just writing a check, that we would have already made substantial progress. So it's deeper and more complicated than just pushing money into these programs and then um, not coming up with a strategic approach to doing it. And I'll, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. The recruitment 
of uh, a sufficient number of Native American teachers who have the linguistic and cultural fluency to support the requirements under state law and, and frankly, commit ourselves to the kind of culturally appropriate education that Native American children are entitled to. Do we have enough specialists in with certifications in dealing with and teaching children with disabilities, in, especially in rural communities? We found out recently from reporting that there are a lot of teachers in the state who have the requisite certification, but they're not actually teaching as special ed teachers. Well, why is that? Yeah, that was a really disappointing report. Let me, let me just uh, mention, if you just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm very pleased to be talking with Attorney General Raul Torres. And I, I want to stick with Yazi, if we can, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's probably one of the most important decisions ever. And it's also, I think, right. the most significant case that involves the state. And I guess uh, one question about all your meetings is, don't you have the power to kind of force this because you're the attorney general and the attorney general is supposed to represent the state and you would have the ability seemingly to replace the law firm and agree to whatever you think ought to be agreed to? I mean, to a certain extent, I I certainly think I have – legal authority to do things that that I have refrained from doing, let's say, at this point, in part because I think we've gotten to this position because we have put too much energy into these legal fights, into these legal battles. And I don't, I'm trying to, to come up with a way in which we can solve these problems without provoking another legal fight, right? And so, I could certainly, I think, come in and say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and just start commanding people through the framework of litigation to do certain things. But at the end of the day, if I don't have institutional buy-in and a commitment from stakeholders on both sides of the equation, it, it will be a meaningless victory, right? It will not lead to the kind of sustained change that we need. And so we've taken a very deliberate approach, meeting with each side of the equation, talking to try and understand each of their respective perspectives and interests, and then developing, I hope, a process where they, we can actually get them back to the table. The thing that was so striking to me is the fact that there had been no direct communication between the legal representatives of the Yazi plaintiffs and the department itself. Meaning they hadn't sit, you know, there was no way for them to sit at a conference table and go issue by issue by issue and hash out an agreement. And the reason for that is lawyers were filing motions and engaged in all of these battles, but we weren't making progress. And you so, know, um, if I can just interrupt, because sure. you know, my sense is, I mean. We, Everybody likes to blame the lawyers, right? But right. My, my, my sense is that it's really the governor that is behind the opposition to this step-by-step plan with a concrete timeline that you're pushing for. Aren't you basically now at odds with what you want to accomplish and what she thinks really PED can accomplish, what it's capable of accomplishing. 
I mean, is that what's really underlying this whole problem? You know, I, I, I think that there um, – I can't speak to sort of all the dynamics of why there's been as much turnover as there has been and there's sort of, um, let's say, less interest or focus on negotiating this, this blueprint. Um, but what I do know is that the, the problem that was revealed with the Yavi lawsuit – is a generational challenge, right? It's something that predated this governor. And frankly, if we're going to make a difference in these kids' lives, it's going to have to outlast the governor. And it's going to have to outlast my time in office. You know, I, I'm wondering that even with buy-in, yeah. you know, would would PED be in a position to do this? I mean, if, if you have a professional sports franchise or any organization mired in last place for decades, what you do is you throw the bumps out. You know, you get all new teammates, you get all new coaches, you get all new trainers. I mean, if you're going to change an organization and make it, you know, do radically different things, I mean, can you really do it without a complete changeover? Well, look, and this is the challenge of of public administration and public leadership is, you know, in, in in a sports context, you can do that, right? And when you do that, you kind of... You get you 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 know you satisfy the fans, and everybody is sort of yeah we got a new coach we got a new quarterback and all this stuff, and then we all kind of accept and admit that we're going to live through three or four or five years of this sort of uh, era of rebuilding, and you know the issues at play here are so serious that it doesn't really lend itself to that kind of wholesale restructuring because my first obligation is to try and not make things worse. So, so, so we're nearing the end of the show and Mm -hmm. I first saw something indicating that you were going to make a change in Yazi about four months ago. And as you say, you've been meeting with the parties since then. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I guess the question is, when do you think we're going to see something? When do you think we're actually going to, be able to say, yeah, there's there's changes being made. Yeah, so we're we are in we are in the the process of digging into some of the details. Um, we've asked the the Yazi team for you know their specific recommendations because I want to have those in hand. We're taking those back to the department, and but but more than getting to a place where. We have answered all the questions. I think the most important thing is that if that we establish an ongoing process for how we're going to approach each of these really complicated issues and questions, I think we are going to be in a position to to hopefully move this forward, assuming we get buy-in um, from PED and others to to maybe present something to the court and within the next couple of months. Um, but the first step is to try and have everybody stand down, right? Put their uh, sort of legal tools back in their respective corners and just see if we can engage in a dialogue, which has been missing. And that's the hardest part. But I think if we can get the right people talking to each other on specific detailed issues and how the process will move forward, there's a chance that we can do this without engaging in, an, in several more years of of legal fights that don't really improve the lives and education of of children in our state. 
we are going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, New Mexico Attorney General Raul Torres. Thanks also to my producers, Gustafoya and Roman Garcia. The executive producer of this show is Lynch Becky, and my name is Stephen Spitz. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of the show are available wherever you get podcasts. Search Stephen Spitz. Archives of past shows are at stephenspitz.com. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time.